Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. The 1950s shifted into the swinging 60s with more of a swivel and a twist. By the dawn of the decade, the song that launched a dance craze had blossomed into a full-fledged cultural revolution. I'm Steve Greenberg, and we're about to tackle the second half of the story behind the dance that changed history on this episode of Speed of Sound. In 1958, a bar called the Peppermint Lounge opened in New York City. It was located on 45th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. But it definitely did not draw a theater-going crowd. The regulars at the Peppermint Lounge were more likely to be bikers, sailors, prostitutes, and teenagers from the suburbs who were drawn to Manhattan to take advantage of New York's lower drinking age. In short, the Peppermint Lounge was your classic dive bar. It was also a mafia front. While the club's liquor license listed the owner as Ralph Sagisi, a retired New York police captain, the real owner was Johnny Biello, who was a capo in the Genovese crime family. Biello earned his stripes under such mob legends as Frank Costello, Lucky Luciano, and Dutch Schultz. For Johnny Biello, the Peppermint Lounge was a place to run his gambling and loan sharking operations out of. As such, it was best for the Peppermint Lounge to stay under the radar. The club didn't even have a telephone. That way, the feds had no phone they could tap. Make no mistake, the Peppermint Lounge was one tough joint. The bouncers were all professional wrestlers, including guys like Lou Albano, later known as Captain Lou, and Lenny the Bull Montana, who in 1972 played the gangster Luca Brazzi in the movie The Godfather. What the hell is this? That's a Sicilian message. It means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. The Peppermint Lounge had a long bar, and at the end of that bar, there was a bandstand and a tiny dance floor. Bar bands would play rhythm and blues while the regulars got drunk. In September of 1960, a band from New Jersey was hired to play three nights worth of shows at the club. The name of the band was the Starlighters. Their leader was a saxophone player named Joe DeNicola, known professionally as Joey D. Let's let Joey D tell you their story himself. Well, I was very fortunate to be born in Passaic, New Jersey, and I went to the same high school the Shirelles went to, and they actually got me my first record contract with uh, Scepter Records, and the owner of the company was also from Passaic, New Jersey, Florence Greenberg, and this this is how it all started back then in the mid-50s. I was actually playing saxophone and singing background while the records they made for Scepter went nowhere, Joey D and the Starlighters were building a reputation as a great live band. We became uh, New Jersey's number one band. And um, how we did that was we worked at a place called the Irvington House right off the Jersey Parkway. And while we were there, we would back up the stars that would come in, uh, i.e. Frankie Avalon, 
Connie Francis, Bobby Rydell, Fabian, all of these people came in and my band was that good that we backed up all of these superstars. And I said, man, one of these days, I'm going to be one of you guys. And I told that to Bobby Rydell and he said, Joe, you guys are really good. I think you're going to make it. One night in September of 1960, the Starlighters were playing a gig when fate intervened. And then I also worked at a club in Lodi, New Jersey called Oliveri's. And while we were there, we had this agent stop in. He saw all the cars in the, in the parking lot. It was on Route 46 in Lodi. And he stopped and see what all the commotion was about. So he came in. His name was Don Davis. And he was an agent from New York City. And he saw the band that during my break, he called me over and said who he was. And he had a gig in New York City. Would we be interested? And New York City's the dream of all bands is from New Jersey anyway. And I said, of course. So he booked us for three days at the Peppermint Lounge. The Starlighters arrived at the Peppermint Lounge for their three-night gig in October of 1960, just as Chubby Checker's recording of The Twist was peaking on the charts. But Joey D was already familiar with Hank Ballard's version of the song. I had the first uh, integrated band in New Jersey, to my knowledge. And we uh, had a, a guy in the group called Rogers Freeman, who was my lead vocalist, along with David Brigatti, who would later become one of the Young Rascals. So Rogers said there's a group playing at Ben's Cotton Club in Newark, New Jersey, named Pearl Reeves Band. And uh, I said, well, let's go check them out. So... David and I were the only white people in the joint. And that wasn't the only time because we, we loved R&B music. So uh, during uh, Pearl Reese's break, they were playing uh, the jukebox. And I see these kids doing this real cool dance. And I, I go up to the jukebox to see what the dance, what, what the song was. And it was Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, The Twist. So I said, this is great, man. We got to put this as part of our show. I bought the record, brought it to the Starlighters, and it became the most popular part of our show. The three-night gig went so well that the club asked Joey D and the Starlighters to stay on as the house band. Well, the three-day gig became uh, 13 months as a house band. Pretty soon, the Peppermint Lounge started to attract a lot of kids from New Jersey who'd heard that the Starlighters were in residence there. And those kids went wild every night when the band played the twist. The tiny dance floor at the Peppermint Lounge was packed night after night with New Jersey teenagers all doing that dance. Nearly a year into the Starlighter's residence at the Peppermint Lounge, a man named Lee Ratner, who was an associate of Johnny Biello, came to the Peppermint Lounge with his girlfriend, Grace Palmer. Lee spent most of that night in the back room talking business with Johnny Biello while Grace sat at the bar taking in the scene. When Lee and Johnny finally concluded their business, Lee came out to the bar and found his girlfriend sitting there transfixed by the dancing, wanting to join in even. This inspired Lee Ratner to try to get an item placed in the gossip pages about the scene at the Peppermint Lounge. He managed to reach Liz Smith, who would eventually go on to become a legendary gossip columnist herself, but who at that point was an assistant to Charlie Knickerbocker, the very influential columnist for the New York Journal-American, whose gossip column was syndicated in newspapers across America. The name Charlie Knickerbocker was, of course, a pseudonym. His real name was Igor Cassini, and he was the brother of the famous fashion designer Oleg Cassini, who designed First Lady Jackie Kennedy's clothes, and who the First Lady referred to as Secretary of Style. Charlie Knickerbocker's column specialized in covering what was known back then as cafe society, the comings and goings of New York's upper crust. It was Charlie Knickerbocker who named that crowd the Jet Set, in fact. Anyway, on September 21st, 1961, Charlie Knickerbocker ran an item in his column stating that Prince Obolensky, a descendant of Russian royalty and a well-known jet setter, was sighted at New York's chic Peppermint Lounge doing The Twist. Knickerbocker wrote, The Twist is the new teenage dance craze, but you don't have to be a teenager to do The Twist. Of course, by this point, The Twist was far from new. Chubby Checker's record was more than a year old. But let's put that aside and focus on the fact that Prince Obolensky had never actually been to the Peppermint Lounge. The whole item was fabricated. Nonetheless, the story took on a life of its own. 
other society columnists also started mentioning the Peppermint Lounge. And soon enough, actual jet setters and celebrities began to show up at the club, anxious not to miss out on the action. Within weeks, the Peppermint Lounge was crawling with celebrities. Marilyn Monroe, Maurice Chevalier, Judy Garland, Noel Coward, Shirley MacLaine, Truman Capote, Greta Garbo, Tennessee Williams, and so many more of their ilk started to turn the Peppermint Lounge into their clubhouse, abandoning their usual haunts like El Morocco or the Stork Club, and crowding onto the tiny dance floor along with the bikers and the teenagers from New Jersey. The crowd soon became out of control with people lined up around the block trying to get in night after night. Journalist Tom Wolfe noted, Everybody was there, and the hindmost were laying fives, tens, and $20 bills on cops, doormen, and a couple of sets of maitre d's to get within sight of the bandstand and a dance floor the size of somebody's kitchen. Then the national media began to take notice, adding to the frenzy. To the regulars of the peppermint, the twist is not new. But then society discovered it, and almost overnight, the Rolls-Royce set began to mingle with the motorcycle set. Now they rub elbows in the mob that lines up every night outside the Peppermint Lounge. The mink stole has become as common as the bulky sweater and the black leather jacket. The visitors to the Peppermint Lounge now include such notables as Mrs. Jean Smith, a sister of the President of the United States, and a United States Senator, Jacob Javits. And sometimes even high social standing can't get you in. As many as a thousand customers are turned away every night. The streets around the Peppermint Lounge were closed off to traffic. Police barricades were set up, and mounted police were brought in to keep the crowds waiting outside from spilling out from the sidewalk. Major celebrities like Dick Clark and even Chubby Checker himself were forced to endure the long lines outside in order to gain entrance. As Joey D recalled, Well, it, it was a nice, beautiful mix in the beginning until about two weeks later, because now it's all about the money, as you know. And uh, the society people carried a lot of weight and they were famous people. So, of course, they got to the front of the line and uh, the young kids and all got shunted aside, which was kind of sad because they, they, they were my uh, real audience. And they, they were the kids I catered to. And they were the ones who, who made the Peppermint Lounge what it was. What was truly remarkable about this whole scene was that adults had never shown the slightest interest in rock and roll before. But now, all of a sudden, they couldn't get enough of the twist. Remember, in its first go-round, a year earlier, adults had condemned the twist as lewd. New York's Roseland Ballroom banned it entirely. But now, the grown-ups were leading the charge. A year after the twist crossed racial barriers in Baltimore and Philadelphia, it was now crossing generational barriers in New York, and even class barriers. Isn't it the end thing to do? I think so, yes. It really is the end thing to do. What would be some of the out things to do? Well, I guess the only comment I could make on that is not to do it would be out. I mean, if you don't do it, you're just considered out. I don't know of anyone that doesn't do it at the moment. The Arthur Murray Dance Studios across the country saw a massive increase in enrollment as they promised to teach the twist in six easy lessons. According to one dance instructor... The twist allows a lot more individualism than most popular dances. People are getting fed up with being automatons, whether it's on the factory production line or a dance floor. And according to Newsweek, The Twist, a rock and roll comedy of Eros, has suddenly turned the Peppermint Lounge, a run of the gin mill, into a melting pot for socialites, sailors, and salesmen. But not everyone loved the idea of adults becoming infatuated with the twist. The New York Times was particularly harsh. Arthur Gelb, who wrote for the paper about culture, sneered, Cafe society hasn't gone slumming with such energy since its forays into Harlem in the 20s. And the Times education writer lamented, Instead of youth growing up, adults are sliding down. Of course, this bright media spotlight was entirely counter to the original purpose of the Peppermint Lounge, which was to avoid attention so it could serve as a front for mob activity. The owners quickly adapted, however, embracing the success, and eventually they opened Peppermint Lounges in other cities around the world. Now, the twist frenzy was definitely a signal that America was changing rapidly. 
The baby boomers were bringing down the average age of the U.S. population. There was a young, charismatic president in Washington. And the jet set was, for the very first time, taking its cues from youth culture, notably rock and roll. After ignoring and even condemning rock and roll for the first seven years of its existence on the national stage, adults now wanted in on the action. And the twist was an easy way for adults to glom onto youth culture. It was so simple to learn. Anyone could do it. You actually have to wonder what the Arthur Murray Dance Studios even taught in those six lessons. Anyway, soon the great thought leaders of the establishment began to weigh in on the phenomenon. One professor referred to the twist as a valid manifestation of the age of anxiety, an outward manifestation of the anguish, frustration, and uncertainty of the 1960s, an effort to release some of the tension which, if suppressed and buried, could warp and destroy. And the acclaimed media guru Marshall McLuhan had this to say. I don't myself think of it as a, as a hot sort of dance. It looks uh, very, very cool, very casual, like conversation without words, a sort of highly expressive conversational style without words. It didn't take long for the folks at Cameo Parkway Records to realize that the twist still had a lot of life left in it. And since now it was a completely different audience that was dancing the twist, they didn't see the need to record a new twist song to cash in on the craze. They just re-released Chubby Checker's 1960 recording of the twist and started promoting it again to radio stations. For his part, Chubby Checker picked up the pace of his TV appearances, finally getting a booking to perform the twist on The Ed Sullivan Show in late October. From there, it was a steady climb back up the charts. And by the beginning of 1962, the twist found itself once again in the number one position, this time holding down the top slot for two weeks, which is one week more than it had the first time around. It would certainly have stayed at the top longer, but this time it had competition. Up next, the Peppermint Lounge inspires a number one record that gives the twist craze a whole new spin and flavor. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. 
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All the media attention surrounding the Peppermint Lounge had put a bright spotlight on Joey D and the Starlighters. And it wasn't long before record companies were approaching the band to record their own twist record. Here's Joey D. So I had three record companies come in and uh, vie for our contract signing. I had the Roulette Records, I had Atlantic Records, and Capitol Records. I talked to all three. I talked to Ahmed Erdogan from uh, Atlantic, and I talked to Nick Benet from Capitol, and Morris Levy from Roulette Records. And I said, whoever signs us has to have a recording out by us within two to three weeks. And Atlantic said they couldn't do it. And Capital said they couldn't do it. And Morris Levy said, I'll have it done in two weeks. And so we opted for Morris Levy, not knowing he was connected with the Genovese family and the mob and all that other stuff, which I learned later. We've mentioned Morris Levy previously on Speed of Sound in our episode about Sugar Hill Records, but his tentacles reached across rock and roll's first four decades. Like Johnny Biello, Morris Levy was close with the Genovese crime family, although, as a Jew, he couldn't formally be a member. And like Johnny Biello, he was involved in the nightclub business as the owner of Birdland, the famed jazz club on Broadway. Morris Levy owned a whole slew of record labels and publishing companies and was quite fond of listing his own name as the composer on songs he released, like the classic Frankie Lyman hit, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Needless to say, Morris Levy did not, in reality, compose that song or any other. Morris Levy also managed the early rock and roll DJ Alan Freed, and for a while, he tried to copyright the phrase rock and roll itself, shaking down small labels who used the term on their records until finally a judge ruled that the phrase rock and roll was in the public domain. Morris Levy was certainly a man not to be messed with, as Joey D recalled. There was another guy uh, reluctant to sign a contract, so Morris had one of his boys hang him out of a nine-story window by the ankles until he uh, acquiesced. (laughs) When he pulled him up, he said, okay, and where do I sign? Of course he signed. In late 1961, Morris Levy's label, Roulette Records, was on the verge of bankruptcy, so it was in his best interest to get a record by Joey D and the Starlighters released quick before the whole twist fad hit the wall. First, though, Morris Levy insisted on some changes to the group. I knew I was uh, not a lead singer, and I had a band. I had a great rock and roll band, but I needed some great singers. So I got Rogers Freeman from a group called the Vibratones. I got uh, musicians that, that were integrated into the band, and it meant, it meant a lot to me. And I was told by, by Morris Levy, and he was, wasn't very kind in, in his assessment of my group. He didn't mind that I had the keyboardist and the, the drummer that they were black, uh, Willie Davis and Carlton Lattimore, but he didn't like the idea of Rogers Freeman being out front. He said, you got to get rid of the name. And I said, what do you mean? He says, if you want the contract, you got to get rid of him. And one of my biggest regrets is I acquiesced and, that's how I got Larry Veneri in the group, because he wanted three little Italian white guys out front. And that's what we did. Morris Levy put Joey D together with the label's musical director, Henry Glover. Does that name sound familiar? A few years earlier, you may recall from our previous episode, Henry Glover was the musical director at King Records, and he produced Hank Ballard's original version of The Twist. He's also the man who insisted that the twist remain on the B-side of that record and that the A-side be a different song, one that he composed. Well, 
Now Henry Glover was at Roulette Records, and he wasn't about to be wrong about the twist a second time. He showed up at the session with Joey D, determined to write a hit. And he made the bold decision that Joey D's twist record should sound nothing at all like the Hank Ballard song. And so he came up with a completely different beat. He also came up with a name for the song, The Peppermint Twist, and lyrics that referenced the phenomenon that was happening specifically at the Peppermint Lounge. Things were moving fast for Joey D and the Starlighters at this point. So when it came time to record the song, they did it on a soundstage where Joey D was starring in a quickie twist-themed movie called Hey, Let's Twist. Now, Joey D wasn't the lead singer of the Starlighters. He was the saxophonist. The lead singer at this point was Dave Brigatti, who would eventually become part of the group The Young Rascals. But Henry Glover didn't like the way Dave Brigatti sounded on the song, and he asked Joey D to give it a try. And I said, Henry, I'm a background singer, and I play saxophone. I'm not a lead singer. But he said, give it a try. So I went in the studio, put the headset on. The band started playing the music, and I sang. We got a new dance, and, he go, and before I even finished the first line, he said, that's what I want. And I became the lead singer of Joey D and the Starlighters. Not only was the beat of Peppermint Twist different from the beat of the twist, but the actual dance that the Starlighters did on stage was a little different too. Joey D's twist incorporated circular arm motions in front of the body and also a lot of pulling up your legs and jumping into the air, all while twisting your pelvis, of course. In late November, just one week after Chubby Checker's twist reappeared on the Billboard Hot 100, the Peppermint twist debuted as well. The two records raced each other up the chart, and while Chubby Checker got to the top first, after two weeks, Joey D replaced him at number one, and he stayed there for three weeks. However, Joey D learned that having a number one record with the Peppermint twist on Morris Levy's label wouldn't be the financial bonanza he was expecting. Morris took me aside and he said, listen, you don't want any problems from me. And I said, uh, no, I don't. He said, you're going to make money performing. That's where you're going to make your money. I'm making the money with the records. That's my business. And what was I to say? So I, I said, okay. And sure enough, here it is almost 60 years later, I'm still making money performing. <laughs> so, so he kept, you know, that part of the deal worked out, but the recording and the, the royalty part did not work out well for me. Given the twist frenzy, it was inevitable that a deluge of twist records would flood the market. First came Dear Lady Twist by Gary U.S. Bonds. Then, the great Sam Cooke described his own experience visiting the Peppermint Lounge in Twistin' the Night Away. Let me tell you about a place Somewhere up a New York way Where the people are so gay Twistin' the Night Away The Isley Brothers took Twist and Shout, the song that had flopped for the top notes in 1960, and turned it into a massive hit. And Chubby Checker found himself inside the top 10 with yet another twist record, Slow Twistin', this time in a duet with a young Philadelphia singer named Dee Dee Sharp. On and on it went, with hundreds of twist records making it to the stores, most of which were putrid, and most of which flopped. Some of these were original twist songs, and some were just twist versions of songs that had already existed, like Chubby Checker's remarkable twist version of Hava Nagila. One of the most awful twist records was by the well-known middle-brow poet Rod McEwen, who put out a song with the cringeworthy title, The Oliver Twist. O-L-I-C-E-R, Oliver Twist, yeah! You ought to see Oliver go 
Even Frank Sinatra got aboard the twist bandwagon with Everybody's Twisted. All the kids were twisting. It didn't take long before the grown-ups were trying it. Who's who was buying it all And, I guess inevitably, the Chipmunks released the Alvin Twist. Some adults were holdouts, however, most notably the great Nat King Cole, who took to the Dinosaur TV show to sing, I Won't Twist. Well, they have a new dance out now. I plan to resist. I won't twist. There were even chubby checker ripoff artists with ridiculous names like Chunky Checkmate and Pudgy Parcheesy, but they were, thankfully, unsuccessful. All in all, 23 different singles with the word twist in their title made the top 40 between 1960 and 1962. And by the way, the word twistin' was never spelled with a letter G at the end. Always an apostrophe. Now, through it all, the frenzy at the Peppermint Lounge continued unabated. One night, Joey D recalled a star was unexpectedly born on the club stage. One evening, we had the three little young girls come in. They were teenagers, 16, 17. And they actually asked me for an opportunity to sing with the group. And this is uh, during our heyday when the place was really uh, booming. And these girls came up on stage and I said, what the heck? The Shirelles gave me an opportunity. So let me give these girls a chance. But they got up and did uh, uh, what I say, Ray Charles's recording and tore the house down. And I immediately hired them and they went on to become uh, the Ronettes and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as well. The three girls. The Peppermint Lounge by this point had become so popular and crowded that the society folk needed to find other clubs where they could actually get in. The best of these, by far, was a club up in Harlem called Small's Paradise, which was owned at the time by basketball star Wilt Chamberlain. When the jet setters descended on the club, Wilt the Stilt increased the cover charge, which did nothing to stop the limousines from snaking around the block. The star attractions at Small's Paradise were Mamalu Parks and the Parkettes, the house dancers, who'd been major dance stars since the days of the Lindy. And the house band at Small's Paradise was led by saxophonist King Curtis, who'd played on an endless string of classic R&B records in the 50s. When Small's became hot with the twisting jet setters, King Curtis signed a record deal with Bobby Robinson's Harlem-based Enjoy Records and had a big hit with an instrumental called Soul Twist. By the way, besides being a great record, Soul Twist also holds the distinction of being the first hit record with the word soul in its title, as that word was just starting to be used to describe the newest wave of R&B. Now, it didn't take long for Twistploitation products to start hitting the market. The Joey D film, Hey, Let's Twist, that he was filming in October, well, that was in theaters in time for Christmas. I mean, we've hit on something big, Joey. Not just a new dance, but a new sound, a new beat. I tell you, when it hits, we'll have it made. Okay. So you tell them we're going to quit school for the twist. And for his part, Chubby Checker starred in two feature-length twist movies, Don't Knock the Twist and Twist Around the Clock. Hey, baby, that dance got a name. Can you see what I'm doing? Yeah, you're twisting yourself into a nervous breakdown. That's it, brother. The twist. And if you bruise easily, I'll stay away from my hips. Chubby Checker and Joey D each even made their own twist instructional records. Hi again, back like I promised. We're ready to do some more twisting. Turn to the helpful hint section of the instruction booklet. Find it? Good. Now, those of you who have partners, stand face-to-face with enough space between you so you can swing your arms without bruising each other. By the way, my mom used to tell this story about how my older brother and his friends in the neighborhood, when they were really little, used to line up in front of the TV every afternoon to take twist lessons from Chubby Checker. I always assumed that she was misremembering and that maybe they did this once. However, mom was right. It turns out that 
For a while, Chubby Checker hosted these five-minute daily twist instruction shows on TV, sponsored by Duncan Hines Fudge Mix. But I digress. Of course, there was endless twist merchandise for sale. There were twist shoes, twist hats, twist skirts, and many of these items were endorsed by Chubby Checker himself whose manager, Henry Colt, took out an ad in the New York Times letting advertisers know that Chubby was for sale. Manufacturers, attention. A new nationwide name to pre-sell your product. The Twist with Chubby Checker, king of the twist, who created the greatest nationwide dance in years. Licenses available. Big names mean big business. And just about every TV show on the air felt obligated to work the twist into at least one episode. For instance, on The Dick Van Dyke Show, the suburban housewife Laura Petrie, played by Mary Tyler Moore, twisted in her living room. Everybody started doing a twist. Everybody, you're beginning to sizzle. You twist a little, little then you twist, twist a lot. And now then, let's then, really get hot. Is this what you and do all day? No, 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 sometimes I do the cha-cha. <laughs> And on the Flintstones, everybody got down to the twist in the prehistoric town of Bedrock. Well, we'll twist around the clock tonight in Bedrock. Twist, twist, and Rock is gonna roll with all his might in Bedrock. Meanwhile, twist mania began to go international. It was brought to France by the Broadway cast of West Side Story, who traveled to Paris for a limited run of the show, carrying with them the latest twist records. They headed straight to the chic Parisian nightclub Chez Régine, where they handed their twist records to the DJ and set the stage for a full-fledged twist craze in France. In fact, Johnny Halliday, the singer known as the French Elvis, spent seven weeks at number one in France at the end of 1961 with his version of Let's Twist Again. The twist even found its way into the Kennedy White House. Now, JFK's predecessor, Dwight Eisenhower, was no fan of the twist, that's for sure. Now, I have no objection to the twist as such, but it does represent some kind of change in our standards. What has happened to our concepts of beauty and decency and morality? But JFK and his wife, Jackie, they embraced the twist, although at first they tried to hide their twisting from the public, worried that the twist was not quite presidential. In February of 1962, the Washington Star newspaper reported that the First Lady and Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara had been seen twisting at a White House party. This prompted White House Press Secretary Pierre Salinger to immediately issue a statement. I was there until 3 a.m., and nobody did the twist. But years later... Longtime Washington Post editor Ben Bradley confessed that indeed there was twisting at JFK's parties. In Ben Bradley's memoir of the Kennedy years, he recalled one particular evening event which was attended by Jackie Kennedy's sister, Princess Lee Radziwill. Yes, Jackie Kennedy's sister was an actual princess. After dinner, Lee Radswell put Chubby Checker's record on and gave all the men lessons. The champagne was flowing like the Potomac River in flood, and the president himself was opening bottle after bottle in a manner that sent the foam flying over the furniture, shouting, look at Bill go to Walton, or look at Benji go to me, as we practiced with the princess. And at one of Kennedy's twist parties, Phil Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post, actually split his pants while doing some especially wild twisting. By this point, the twist had truly permeated all of American culture. As Jim Dawson put it in his great book about the twist phenomenon, called The Twist, Somehow this goofy dance managed to articulate a growing divide in the world, energizing people who embrace the future and threatening those who would safeguard the past. Having a teenage dance adopted by high society and, subsequently, middle America, was only a taste of things ahead. A new world was coming, and the twist was a first tentative line drawn in the sand. But, of course, all those adults getting into the twist inevitably meant that for the teens, it was now time to move on. That's how most fads die. When the squares start to get into it, 
the hipsters get out. I'd like you to meet Mr. Cornish from the Arthur Murray Dance Studios. Everyone's talking about the twist that swept the world, but we don't know how to do it yet. Perhaps you can remedy this. Actually, there are about four elements that enter into the uh, twist movement. The first one being standing with your feet uh, approximately 12 inches apart and holding your arms up, of course, and then just moving your hips from one side to the other. In May 1962, Billboard magazine ran a story with the headline, Has the Twist Had It? Trade Sees Fad Fading Fast. Filmmaker Ron Mann, who made a great documentary called Twist, puts it this way. Really what happened was when adults started doing it, it then became acceptable and then it became, uh, you know, adverse to young people. <laughs> I mean, they didn't want to do the dances their parents are doing. For sure, by mid-1962, the twist was starting to seem pretty square. And so the kids moved on to a host of new dances all inspired by the twist in that they were dances that you did without touching your partner, but each one offering its own unique variation. There was the locomotion. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Come on, baby, do the locomotion. I know you get to... There was the hitchhike. There was the dog. Plus, there was the boogaloo, the jerk, the monkey, the swim, and so many more. Cameo Parkway Records, for their part, helped popularize a few of these new dance crazes, like the Watusi. Cameo Parkway also promoted the mashed potato, which broke through on the back of a hit record by Dee Dee Sharp, the same teenager who duetted with Chubby Checker on Slow Twistin'. A single from Louisiana named Chris Kenner had a hit which just listed as many dance crazes as possible entitled Land of a Thousand Dances. You gotta know how to twist Go like this That's the By late 1962, the twist itself was yesterday's news, and even Bobby Pickett's novelty record, The Monster Mash, made that clear. Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. The up next, the twist winds down, but not without popping up again in some very unexpected and prominent places. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. 
In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To certify the fact that the twist fad was over, Joey D's sequel to his movie, Hey Let's Twist, entitled Viva La Twist, had its name changed by the time it hit theaters to Two Tickets to Paris. By November, Billboard observed the rise of a new dance, popularized by a hit record from Brazil, asking, is Bossa Nova the new twist? Now, people often refer to the twist as having two lives, one fueled by Dick Clark in 1960 and the other by the Peppermint Lounge in 1962. But the truth is, the twist really had one long life. Let me get wonky for a second. I've mentioned the diffusion of innovations paradigm previously on Speed of Sound. It describes how any new product or idea moves through society on its way to becoming popular. As it happened, the twist moved through different pockets of the culture in a classic bell-shaped diffusion curve. Follow me here. Starting with the African-American kids dancing the Hank Ballard's record at dances and record hops in 1959, then spreading to the kids in Baltimore who danced it on the Buddy Dean show, and then busting out to the entire teen population after Dick Clark put Chubby Checker on TV in 1960, the twist eventually won over the Jet Setters, who danced it at the Peppermint Lounge and made it safe for grown-ups across the world. And finally, there were the laggards, still twisting after everyone else had moved on. Actually, the most famous laggard of them all was JFK himself, who clearly was too distracted by pressing matters like the Cuban Missile Crisis to realize that the twist fad had faded. In May of 1963, Jackie Kennedy threw JFK a 46th birthday party on the presidential yacht, the Sequoia. According to Washington Post editor Ben Bradley, who was aboard the yacht that night, Kennedy had not yet learned that the twist was passé and kept calling for more chubby checker every time the three-piece combo played anything else. Jackie Kennedy, who had an impeccable sense of what was in and what was out, is said to have found the entire experience cringeworthy. The twist, nowadays, Time Magazine declared, is for squares. As for chubby checker, he kept on having hits for a while, but not with twist records. In late 1962, for instance, he hit big with Limbo Rock, which has gone down as a staple of kids' birthday parties until this day. Every limbo boy and girl all around the limbo world gonna do the limbo rock all around the limbo clock. But Limbo Rock was Chubby Checker's last top 10 record. He hung around the lower reaches of the top 40 for the next year or so by jumping on the folk music bandwagon, of all things, releasing songs like Hookah Tuka. But by early 1964, with the arrival of the Beatles, the hits dried up for Chubby Checker. Ironically, one of the Beatles' biggest hits in that early first flush of American Beatlemania was their version of Twist and Shout. And that song even had a second life when it was used in a classic scene in the 1986 film Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 
By the way, on their first trip to America in February of 1964, the Beatles even visited the Peppermint Lounge, the original one in New York and the one in Miami. In New York, Ringo got up and did the twist. In Miami, the Beatles saw Hank Ballard perform and even got to meet him. Now, although he wasn't at the top of the charts any longer, by 1964, Chubby Checker, as a result of his constant TV appearances over the years, was a huge worldwide star. In April of 1964, just as the Beatles' twist and shout was peaking on the U.S. chart, Chubby Checker married Katarina Lauders, a Dutch model who was 1962's Miss World. Incidentally, they're still married to this day. The hits may have been in the past, but let's face it, Chubby Checker had a pretty good run while it lasted. Jim Dawson, in his book The Twist, notes that The general consensus is that he was a one-hit wonder whose one hit was so stupendously popular that it lasted 10 years. But that really sells Chubby Checker short. In a little over three years, he scored 21 top 40 hits, with seven of them landing in the top 10. And he made it to number one three times, twice with a twist, but also with pony time. And in 1988, Chubby Checker returned to the top 20 on the pop chart, when he joined forces with rap pioneers, the Fat Boys, releasing a twist rap hybrid record called The Twist, Yo Twist. In recent years, Chubby Checker has made headlines by demanding that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland erect a statue of him in its courtyard. His recording of the twist, he argues, changed the culture forever. He's not wrong. Even so, Chubby Checker has never been elected to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and this fact irks him, especially since Hank Ballard was elected in 1990. While it's not a slam dunk, I think you can make a case for Chubby Checker's inclusion in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was the catalyst for a lasting revolution in pop music and in the overall culture. He had a lot of hit records, including The Twist, which Billboard to this day lists as the biggest hit of all time on the Hot 100 chart. And it's the only record to go to number one in two different chart runs. Plus, he was the biggest rock and roll star in the world for a time. On the other hand, he did put out a lot of schlock and his records were largely derivative. Anyway, in 2018, as a kind of consolation prize, Chubby Checker's recording of The Twist became the first hit single inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's singles category. I guess they thought that was easier than erecting the statue. As for Chubby's label, Cameo Parkway Records, they were dealt a crushing blow when Dick Clark moved American Bandstand to Los Angeles in 1964. Denied easy access to their most powerful source of promotion, the label went bankrupt in 1967. By the end, Cameo Parkway's original creative team of Cal Mann and Dave Appel had already departed, and the label's releases began to credit younger Philadelphia musicians, people who would return Philadelphia to the top of the music world in the 1970s, including Kenny Gamble, who wrote one of the last great Cameo Parkway hits, a dance craze record called The 81 by Candy and the Kisses. Cameo Parkway's catalog was bought by Alan Klein, who a couple of years later became the Beatles' manager. Inexplicably, his company, Abco, kept the Cameo Parkway titles out of circulation for nearly 30 years, missing the height of the CD reissues boom in the 90s and causing Chubby Checker to have to re-record his hits, including the twist, in order to make them available to the public. So if you're perusing the internet looking for Chubby Checker music, be very careful that you're finding the original recordings. As for Hank Ballard, his hit-making days declined after 1961, but he did make one more appearance in the top 15 on the R&B chart in 1968, when James Brown, the biggest star on King Records, produced Hank on How You Gonna Get Respect When You Haven't Cut Your Process Yet. How you gonna get respect? Yeah. 
Hank Ballard made a few more records over the years for a variety of labels, but nothing that stuck. And in 1975, in order to pay off a $25,000 debt, he sold his songwriter rights to The Twist to none other than Morris Levy, making Morris Levy the owner of both The Twist and The Peppermint Twist for a time. A few years later, Hank Ballard won those rights back in a complex court case based around the fact that Hank had copyrighted the original demo of the twist that he made for VJ Records in 1958 prior to King Records copywriting their version of the song. Hank Ballard died in 2003, but in the final years of his life, he was once again earning money from his biggest song. As for Joey D, he and the Starlighters left their residency at the Peppermint Lounge after 13 months, and that was just a couple of months after the Jet Setters started descending on the club. He spent the next few years earning big money doing live shows across the globe, and during one show in Sweden in 1963, he even had the honor of sharing a bill with the Beatles, who were his opening act. Over the years, a veritable who's who of legendary performers were members of the Starlighters, including Felix Cavalieri and Eddie Brigatti, the songwriting powerhouse who formed the core of the legendary group The Rascals. The actor Joe Pesci played guitar in the Starlighters for a while, as did a left-handed guitarist named Jimi Hendrix. Joey D remembers Hendrix. I auditioned him in my house, and Jimmy played maybe 30 seconds, and I said, wow, you're, you're fabulous, man. So he got the gig. For its part, the Peppermint Lounge continued on for a couple of years after the twist craze died down. It turned out that dancing to rock and roll had its own lasting appeal, regardless of what the hottest dance was at any given moment. But in 1965, the club owner's fear that too much public attention would lead to scrutiny from the authorities proved to be warranted. When the FBI discovered the identities of the true owners of the Peppermint Lounge, Mafia Chieftain Johnny Biello and his associates, they revoked the club's liquor license and the Pep Lounge closed by the end of the year. But the Peppermint Lounge proved to be the template for all the rock and roll clubs that came afterward, from the Whiskey-A-Go-Go on the Sunset Strip in L.A. to New York Studio 54. By 1965, there were 5,000 discotheques in the U.S., and all those dances that followed the twist to the dance floor, the Holly Gully, the Swim, and the rest, they eventually gave way to something more freeform, as one of the original American bandstand dancers, Betty Romantini told filmmaker Ron Mann in his documentary, The Twist. The rules were broken and it's okay, guys. Nobody's going to stop us now because we're, we're all like doing our own thing. And, you know, we're, we're out there and there's no going back now. Touch dancing wouldn't return to popularity on the dance floor until the hustle in the mid-70s. Well, no one has written more eloquently about the twist's impact than legendary African-American author and activist, the late Eldridge Cleaver, who saw the twist as the opening salvo of a cultural reckoning. So I'll let him tell you in his own voice and his own words, reading from his classic book of essays, Soul on Ice. The twist, superseding the hula hoop, burst upon the scene like a nuclear explosion, sending its fallout of rhythm into the minds and bodies of the people. The twist was a guided missile launched from the ghetto into the very heart of suburbia. The twist succeeded, as politics, religion, and law could never do, in writing in the heart and soul what the Supreme Court could only write. On the books, the twist was a form of therapy for a convalescing nation. Eldridge Cleaver viewed the twist as the means by which white America shook off the shackles of the stultifying, conformist 1950s. Writhing pitifully, though gamely about the floor, feeling exhilarating and soothing new sensations, released from some unknown prison in which their bodies had been encased, a sense of freedom they had never known before, a feeling of communication with some mystical root source of life and vigor. As the rest of the 1960s unfolded, new freedoms were declared. The sexual revolution, the drug culture, the women's movement. There was a shaking off of taboos, a questioning of all forms of authority. And the big bang that set off this cultural chain reaction was a little dance called The Twist.
Coming up on the next Speed of Sound, it's the pulsating, polarizing nightlife that defined a decade of decadence and spawned some seriously stellar music. Join us as we deep dive into the rise and fall of 70s disco. If you want to take a deeper dive into the artists and songs you just heard, check out our curated playlist at the Speed of Sound page on the iHeart app. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Stevie G Pro. Speed of Sound is executive produced by Lauren Bright Pacheco, Noel Brown, and me. Taylor Shacoin is our supervising producer, editor, and sound designer. Additional sound design by Tristan McNeil. Speed of Sound would like to extend a big thanks to filmmaker Ron Mann for his permission to use excerpts from his sensational documentary, Twist. I highly recommend checking it out. I'm Steve Greenberg. Until next time, keep listening for music that moves you. Speed of Sound is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.